Nashville nights and tour bus lights. For musicians, the road leads us to where we're told to go. Hotels, airports, backstage catering, and that tray of shots to help you get started before you go on. There's many tools to help us get through the gigs, but there's no GPS app for getting sober, finding sanity, and purpose. Our next guest takes us through that first time on stage when he discovered that a shot of vodka helped get rid of the headache. It turns out that was the first nod off into the nightmare that was to become that path that led to the Betty Ford Clinic. It was starting all over, eventually and mercifully, though, finding his way into the arms of the love of a lifetime. Redemption and renewal by the grace of a higher power. All this and more up next on Recovery Talks, the podcast. From the birthplace of modern recovery, Akron, Ohio, welcome to Rock and Recovery. Recovery Talks, the podcast. Dedicated to sharing stories and amplifying the voices of those on the front lines in the recovery movement. Our commitment to you to always deliver straight up sober talk with the sincere promise of a safe, stigma, and judgment free zone. Recovery Talks, right now. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Recovery Talks, the podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lee Shannon. Today's guest is a really, really, really interesting, wonderful musician who happens to be a buddy of mine, and his name is Lee Turner. Welcome, Lee, for joining us today. Hey, Mark, thanks for having me. This is this is really exciting. Thank you. Okay, man, I'm going to go off a little bit on you for a while. Okay, so, <laughs> okay, <laughs> so all right. you all need to sit back here, okay? <laughs> Not only is he a session player, producer, and a teacher, and he's, as I said before, a very inspiring friend of mine. He also played on one of my records called Friends Like You, which you were just, those parts, brother, I'm going to say it right now because we're on podcasts, I can cuss. Those are badass. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Um, Lee is also that smiling face in the back line that has been for the last 12 years with Darius record playing keys piano accordion and guitar man how do you do the accordion thing man it feels like you got to like do a lot of like strength conditioning to do that. i grew up in wisconsin man oh, okay. it was it's in my blood <laughs> so, so so basically three-quarter time is your groove then right, man? <laughs> right. <laughs> there we go uh you played with a host of nashville personalities Blake, Winona, Hank jr and many others nationally and internationally and tv man your credits name it You've played on it. You've done the Jimmy Kimmel. You've done the Tonight Show, The View, The Talk, Today Show. Man, that's just got to feel like, you know, you got to sit back some days and go, how did I get to do that? You know? I just got kind of goosebumps thinking about it because it's pretty unreal. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. How did I get there? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, maybe so. a, a friend of mine always says that when I'm, when I'm feeling like I don't know how I get to do the things I do, he goes, imagine you're wearing a military uniform and take a look at your left forearm. Mm -hmm. You see all those hash marks? You earned them. You earned them, right? So there you go, brother. Yeah. You earned them. Yeah. You know, he grew up in Wisconsin, started playing clubs at 16. I started playing clubs at 16, and I'm not going to talk about the fake idea I had. Uh, <laughs> you got a degree from the University of Wisconsin. In 96, you moved to the guitar town, Nashville, Tennessee. Uh -huh. I did. That's a big move, brother. You know, that's a big move because you don't know. You don't know what's Huge going to happen. bold there. move. No, yeah. and I had everybody against me telling me, ah, that's silly. You're not going to make it. Stay yeah. here, be a music teacher. Yeah, because you know, everybody down there is an alien. That's what I heard. You know what I mean? I remember talking to Paul Yendel, who played with Chet, and he came up, hey, Chet came up here, and of course, Chet was hard to get to, but I got to Paul, 
And the first thing he said to me is, young man, don't go to Nashville. <laughs> oh, wow. Because there's aliens pumping gas down there. It's, it's unbelievable. I think the first night I ever came down here, I went out on a Sunday night and I went down to Broadway and there was live music. And the quality of players that was were playing that night, I you know, I had come from Wisconsin where I was at the top of the game. I was making a lot of money to these cats that were down here playing for tips and killing it. So yeah, it was very humbling really quick. Yeah, I think it's akin to something like going from college sports to into the pros. You know what I mean? Right. Because you can be really, really good. And then you get there and you think, oh my goodness, right. everybody is beyond, I like to use the word alien, but it's like, you know, I, I remember it when I was in guitar, guitar instrument technology, I remember the first day I went in there because yeah. there was 200 kids ex accepted back in 1979, right? And it was like the third or fourth class. Uh, and you know, all those teachers, Tommy Tedesco was there and Howard Roberts was there and all those guys were there. And I can remember walking in going, there's 200 people here and I, I know I'm 199. I know I am. <laughs> <laughs> and the first night I went out on the strip, I saw a band and it was a band called Quiet Riot with Randy Rose playing guitar and I thought this is a club player wow this is a cat playing in clubs I want to go home I was like yeah. crying you know what <laughs> I mean? but man you and I could go on talking about music forever never never but you know we share something you know we met through a mutual friend of ours named Mike Estock yeah for street recording and Mike's a good guy I just texted him this morning man just like man I haven't talked to you how are you doing what's going on I just love that guy I love tracking with him he is just a just a really good spirit. He's a good energy to have around. He you know? is at the top of his game too. He just uh, he had a placement on the new Justin Timberlake thing that's coming out on Apple TV. That's all his music on that on one of the trailers, like blowing me away. And he's so humble. I love that. Good dude. I know. I know. You'd have to pull it out of him. <laughs> like, oh well, you know, I'm doing this, and and he's got a beautiful family and a nice little studio, which I get to track in. Sometimes I just worked on a record with JD Iker. I'm giving him a plug, you know. Yeah. But um, you know, we met through him and then immediately i think the first time we ever talked was maybe after that or slightly before that and you were looking for guitar pedals and i was working with a guitar pedal company and i was remember i was sitting at a mall and we were going on and on i'm like man i like this guy man we were just going on Same. telling stories and stuff you know <laughs> but the reason yeah. we're here is to talk about a different kind of story and um our listeners know you know, before I, I, I want to just get into this, you know, this podcast really is more about the lighthouses and the lantern holders, the people out there that are making it. And, you know, it can be from an addiction or a substance abuse disorder of any kind. It can be from trauma, mental health, physical disabilities. But really, it's for people like us to talk to people who may be curious, to maybe reinforce people that have already, you know, got there and are looking for their tribe. Where is my tribe? And I like being a musician in doing this because we talked before we started recording about, you know, how it is difficult sometimes to be where we are in our tribe and be out into the music world. So before I jump ahead, let's rewind a little bit. Tell me what it was like for you. You know what I mean? How did you come to the place where you realized, man, something's got to change for me? What was it like? Yeah, absolutely. It was a long road and it was a struggle and it was really difficult to navigate because I didn't know what was going on. I had an idea. I can freely say this. My dad, uh, alcoholic background, uh, it runs in my family. Mm -hmm. I steered away from that looking the other way, like it's not going to happen to me. So I think that's one thing that was, you know, genetically it runs in my family. Uh, I was a musician from early on playing in bars. And I think one of the first things that I ever learned was from the drummer at the time, I had a headache and he goes, son, drink this. And I'm like 17. And he goes, either this will make your headache feel better or make it feel worse. And it made it feel better. 
And I was like, what is this? What is this magical vodka? You know, it's stupid. But that always stuck in my brain. Now, that's the early on stuff. Music was my passion. Music has always been there for me. And it carried me through a lot of these times. But I think I didn't take care of myself. I didn't take care of relationships because I didn't know how. Because the alcohol, alcohol was my thing, was just clouding the way I thought. And it was making it more and more difficult. I graduated from University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee with a teaching degree. So I could have taught music, band, high school, middle school. I taught it for half a year. Moved to Nashville. That was the bold move. And that's where everybody was like, you're crazy. I knew one dude down here. I slept on his couch. And two and a half weeks later, I had an audition with an artist that was on Asylum Records. Another week later, I'm rolling down the road on a tour bus. Like it happened that quick. Wow. So, and then it was like, everybody took care of me because that's the type of role that I was in. And in my relationships, I'm throwing this all in a nutshell. My relationships always took care of me, right? So then when I didn't like what was going on, I was building up resentments and it was just kind of this snowball effect. So I got married. I was married for a while. And the alcoholism just really gripped in hard. And uh, I was using it on the road and I was using it at home, hiding, hiding, hiding bottles everywhere. And it, it just became unmanageable. And at one point, my first wife said to me, I need a partner. And it just broke me, you know, and it, but it was like, I didn't know how to do that. Mm. So I kept touring. I played with a bunch of different artists and I'm not putting it on the artists and I'm not putting it on our music career. But as you know, that's part of our social thing that we do. It's all around us. And I'll get to another story later. So it just was all consuming. And I met another girl and quickly migrated to that because I thought she would take care of me. So here's the pattern. That girl didn't take care of me because I didn't take care of myself. About a year and a half into that relationship, it just went down the tubes. And our agreement was that she knew my situation. And I tried to I, I tried to sober up myself. And she was like, if you mess up again, I'm sending you to the Betty Ford. <laughs> and I was like, deal. Mm. Got it. Mm. I got this. I can take care of this. Yep. I didn't. Right. So I struggled for another year and a half. I quit drinking on and off, but then it was just harder than ever. And it got to a point where I was waking up in the morning before the rest of the family and, um, you know, taking pulls off the vodka bottle because that's the only way that I could calm the shakes and function. Yeah. It's a turn, isn't it? Function. The day drinking. It is. When the day drinking starts, wow. that's a new phase. It's a new chapter. And it, it was like, I had to worry about how much I had, where I had it. What did I do with the empty bottles? Well, those went in guitar cases. And then I had to suddenly take the guitar case into the car, dump it into it. It was just this cycle that was, it was a lot of thinking, not a lot of great thinking. So anyway, so I messed up really bad. I smoked in the house, um, in front of children in like, And I was drunk and I could barely form words. I was shaking so bad. Like literally my vocal cords weren't working. They were just shaking. And she looked at me and she says, what's wrong with you? And I finally said, I've been drinking. 
She went over to the phone, picked it up without looking up the number she dialed Betty Ford. And Mark, honestly, and you guys, that's the moment when I said, thank God it's over. And I got somebody on the phone that talked me through it. What we're going to do the next two days, get me on a flight out there. That was tough. It was scary. But I was still convinced that I was going to keep everything. I was going to keep the big house. I was going to keep this family, my car, my job. There needed to be a lot of work. A lot of work needed to happen right then. And I got there and it just emotionally brought me down. I would say where I needed to be. And there was a bunch of us dudes in there and we're like, how we're smart people. How did we get ourselves into this? And it was kind of funny. Right. right. I was in there with doctors, people flying planes, people inventing businesses, you know, and it was just one of those things. We're all the same when it comes to this. And that was amazing to me. Um, So November 8th, 2012, a little over eight years ago is my day that I gave it up and just surrendered. And God is my higher power. I just started doing the work. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit, 30 days in rehab, get home. I get back and I expect everything to change. I expect it just to be rainbows and butterflies and unicorns shooting out (laughs) things out of their asses. And, you know, and the only thing that needed to change was myself. And I needed to figure out that I needed to show people that I've changed, not tell them. Because after 30 days, I thought I knew it, but, you know, I had new language and uh, newfound freedom, but I still wasn't in it. So long story longer, uh, (laughs) a year and a half later after that, I moved out of that relationship. I was sitting in my apartment with no furniture, nothing in it, sitting on the floor crying. And I had no friends. I still hadn't talked to my family. I hadn't repaired that thing yet. My bandmates really didn't like me yet. They, they tolerated me, but I couldn't call them up on the phone. Right. I whipped open my wallet and my insurance card. I flipped it over and I dialed the number for mental health. And I said, I need help. And I got this amazing therapist and I started to work on myself. Bravo, man. And I always tell people I was, I was going to AA meetings every day, my therapist twice a week and Starbucks every day. You know, that was my life. And I really dug in. And that's when things started to turn around. And a little bit of time went by. I started to feel better. My head, it took about a year for me to really start thinking clearly. I suffered from what was called post-acute withdrawal, which was basically my, my midbrain had not healed yet. That was a big, big thing for me to accept. I remember I had a tough old bird named Patty who was at Edwin Shaw because I also felt like, you know, I'd look, 12-step meetings, yes. You know what I mean? Life change. I, for me, it was three things. Don't use, find your tribe. But the other thing for me was that, uh, that big realization that I was not a bad person. I was I had a medical condition that needed to first and foremost be healed. My brain wasn't working anymore. And I had these associations. If I drove by a building, it was like, oh, I got booze there. Let's go there. My car would pull in by itself. It was like it's automated, you know? But, you know, I don't want to tell my story. I want to hear more from your story. Here you go. Very similar. I could not drive down the street without pointing out liquor stores. I knew the people. I knew the smell inside. Like, it was bad. Yeah, so I started working on myself and... 
I think being by myself and working on myself was the first time in my life that I was ever alone. I'd always relied on other people to take care of myself. Yeah. My mom, there was issues there. So I went to the first wife, mm. the second mm. wife, and mm. now I'm divorced and sitting on the floor by myself. I was traveling and I was coming back from California on a little trip and I get to baggage claim and I see this girl and this girl's looking back at me. And this is a big part of my story. And I was thinking, who's she looking at? And I was like, ah, she's probably married or, you know, has a boyfriend. Forget Can't it. Can't be looking at me, right? Can't be looking at me. But I did go to the bathroom. <laughs> I checked my nose for boogers, my teeth, my hair, you know, just, just in case. I go what, back what? out there. Yeah. 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 And she's talking to a friend. The friend leaves and I'm like, I'm not talking to her. Anyways, her bag came out at the same time. And here's where the story takes a little twist. She was not on my plane. Mm. She was on a flight an hour before she accidentally put her keys in her checked bags and her bag got put on my flight. I said, God's my higher power. And I believe he was playing, yeah. he was yeah. playing a role. So I reached down, help her with her bag. She says, do I know you? And this is where I noticed things changed because normally I would have said, Oh, my name is Lee Turner. I play for Darius Rucker. Yeah. Oh, you know, but that, yeah, didn't, right. Here we go. that didn't get me Here anywhere last time. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But I said, right. I just went, I don't know. And she goes, well, what church do you go to? And I was like, whoa, something's different here. And, and it, it's not all about the religion thing or being a Christian, which is, I think, amazing. But it was just that different level yes. of communication. Yes. Right. And I didn't tell her what I did at first. And we just got to know each other. And this is the first time where I believe like I was open and honest with everything. Yeah, turned a new leaf, brother. New leaf. And so we're walking out. Things are going great. She says, you know, would you like to get coffee? And I was like, yes. So we're walking down. I tell her I'm a musician. Right away, she says, I don't date musicians. <laughs> we like her like, right oh. away. <laughs> we like her right away. <laughs> she knows me. Um, but we decide, yeah. you know, to get coffee. And then fast forward, you know, like that night, I was like, who did I just meet? Right, right, right. So then we sit down for coffee. She sits down. She's looking beautiful. And she sits down and she kind of plops her hands down on the desk. And she goes, so tell me about yourself. And immediately I was like, oh, damn it. Here it comes. Yeah. And I told her and I said, well, you know, I'm recently divorced. And she goes, okay, me too. And I said, well, for the second time, <laughs> you know, Yeah. and I could see musician twice divorced. Yeah. Yeah. Conversation was awesome. We decided to go get dinner. The waitress comes up, says, what do you guys want? We have margaritas, blah, blah, blah. And for some reason, she looks at me and she says, do you drink? And I said, no. She goes, I'll have a Diet Coke. And I was like, here it comes. And I told her. And yeah. I could see her body language at first. It wasn't, hey, this is awesome. We ended. She gave me the pat, pat, pat on the shoulder. And I was like, I'm never seeing this woman again. Ever. She Ever called again. me and she says, have you left yet? And she turned her car around. We talked and she says, look, I'm not going to judge you. We all have our pasts. We've all made our mistakes. Yes. And I said, well, let me prove you wrong on any stereotypes you may have about a musician or all this. Right. And we started dating. And all of a sudden, the guys in the band were like, hey, this is something special. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. And we got married six years ago. That's awesome. Dude. And um, that's I'm awesome. sorry, four years ago. We met yeah. six years ago. And it's just amazing. And the... The, the thing that I want you guys to pull from this is 
I live my life being open and honest to the best of my ability. If I make wrong, I make it right. But if I can't speak my mind and tell you how I'm feeling, I'm, I'm an accommodator. Right. Mm. If you've ever done the Enneagram, I am a nine all the way and I accommodate people. (laughs) And then I'll build up a nice little resentment. We could do a whole podcast on that, my friend. Man, yeah, we we can. I'm a one. Mm. And it's just, it's a brilliant way to live. And because if I can be honest with myself and my feelings and I have to work on it, you know, there's times where I'll say something and I'll be like, hey, I really didn't mean that. This is what I meant. And it takes me a while to process some stuff. Also, yeah, yeah, I didn't get that right. I want to get it right now. Let me do it again. Yep, I like it. I like that. You know, the thing with Tiffany, my wife, is you know, somebody came up to me uh, and said, She keeps you sober. I'm so glad that that's happened in your life. And I, I looked him right in the eyes. I said, She doesn't keep me sober. I said, She's wonderful and she really supports me, but I'm keeping myself because of God, because of my higher power. That's what's keeping me sober. And if I don't take care of myself, I throw all of this away. These bodies can take quite a beating. They make love and heal broken bones. And keep you just fine until something inside the size of a speck starts to grow. And oh, sometimes I wonder if there's a reason life gets so hard. Maybe you find what holds you together when things try to tear you apart. I think one of the things I got when I got sober is the permission to do the right thing. Before, I was always worried about how people thought about me, about, you know, that little in, internal critic in my brain that said, man, you're not, you're not a good guitar player, man, you're not a good executive. That inner voice, that critic, right? That was the problem for me. I want to touch on that really quick because there's some new guys in our group that are newly, they, I think they probably have two weeks right now, musicians. And we're like, how do you play sober? We want to talk about that. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I do yeah. want to touch on that. But like, I just think this way of life is, it's kind of a way to plot your path to happier relationships. Mm. Yeah, they're more honest and they're more real, aren't they? They're more real because you can talk to somebody and you're not in the back of your mind thinking about something else. You can focus, (laughs) be present. I'm working on a new tune that that it's kind of funny title, but I won't say it now. But it's really literally about that whole transition from who I used to be to who I am now. And it's one of the lines is, when it comes to my lady, I can can remember to tell her the truth because I can remember the truth. Right? right, and you don't have to worry about what was it I said last night, <laughs> or 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 what was that text that I did? Oh wow. man, did I do that? Well, I want to just get some real questions because man, I think we could yeah. talk for six hours. I know, know, right? But um, do you, so when you go back and you listen to some of the tracks that you were playing when you were when you were not in this place that you're in now, do you ever go back and and do you hear it? Do you hear you're playing different? I was lucky enough to get some projects done and really be proud of them, but I hear. Uh, a washiness. I right. hear a non-idea land. And when I say that, it's just kind of chords that melt in others. There's right. no thoughts behind it. Now, that's recording. When I listen to live stuff that's been recorded, horrifying. 
horrifying because and I should have lost my job. I know. Right at the beginning. I know. Right. You know, there was times where we did some live stuff that was recorded and I had to come in and fix my stuff afterward, after the fact. Horrifying. And it's amazing to me because you think you're on it. You think you're being creative. Well, you're not brother. You're not or sister or whatever. I know. When you go out to see other people play and you see them and they're drinking or they're using and they're not they're not there to play, they're there to party, doesn't it make you kind of feel kind of queasy inside? Absolutely. Don't you get that really weird feeling like, like I don't want to say anything to these guys because most of the time they're your buddies or your pals and you don't want to say anything, but I, you, I just want to say, and then on the converse side of it, they see you in the house and they go, oh, he's sober. Oh. Oh, I better hide my, you know, and like, yeah, it's no, a no, weird you don't have to do thing. that, man. No. It's weird though, isn't it? Yeah. It's the whole, we talked about a little bit at that whole, you know, that, that red cup, that red party pickup truck yeah. party thing that is part of music so, out there, but it's not our life. Like, and I deal with that every night. So my boss loves to do a shot before every show. And I'll tell you what that does is mm -hmm. it's not only, you know, he gets to do a shot, whatever, like he can drink like a normal person. So hats off to him. Man, that's not a problem for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. But here's what it does is it brings our whole camp together. And then we walk as a group to the, to the stage, right? He doesn't care what you have in your glass. Doesn't matter. And I do a shot of Gatorade. Yeah, it doesn't So anyways, matter. so Tiffany, when the first, when we met, she came to one of our shows. We were playing in West Palm Beach Amphitheater, 18,000 people, right? Mm. And we had probably our backstage guests were 40 people all around <laughs> wait, doing wait a shots. Minute, so, yeah. so your lady gets to go to the first gig, 18,000 people. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's not Nikki's bar and pizza, bro. You know what it's I mean? stupid, right? <laughs> it's really ridiculous. And, you know, there's, there's booze on the bus. Yeah. Well, A, because I'm not drinking at all. <laughs> right. But there's booze in the green room. Right. There's probably, there's beer and catering. There's, and then we have this whole table full of shots. She, Tiff, she looked at me and she goes, is this every night? And I went, yeah, it is. And she, her level of like respect went up. Yeah, a lot. She, but you know what? When people go to a concert, that's their way to get away. That's their that's it's their totally party. That's fine. It's totally fine. That's my work. People. Yeah, that's my work, and I can't. You, I, anyways, so so when people want to buy you a shot, yeah, right? and and you're a musician, they're thinking for me, I'll be working yeah. somewhere, and people are like, man, I dig because you know I do, I do sometimes you know which I love. I do the the guy in the corner, you know, playing music at a really nice vineyard. You know, I, I love those gigs because yeah. I can play whatever I want. I'm I'm working at the Looper, man. I'm doing some trippy things. I forget where I am. It's <laughs> lovely. And then people come up yep. and they go, hey, man, let me yeah. buy you a shot. What do you say? I'll tell you what I say. Since COVID, I mean, Tiff and I have been playing duet gigs. She is an amazing singer. Oh, I can imagine, brother. So I we wish we to lived close together, man. I, I know, do. You know I, I mean? know. I'd be like down there like, like <laughs> say, man, let me play, you know? Yeah, so we're doing like four times a month at this club called Sambuca. It's a dinner club. Mm -hmm. And we're actually going to start playing at a winery this summer, you know, because the Darius gigs ain't coming back soon. Let's just face it. No, and that's okay. It's not. And you know, I work with Michael Stanley, the same right. thing. Right, same no, thing. Not even anything on the calendar at this point. So, yes. So they come up to me and, hey, or they'll even set something down and I'll be like, hey, that's that's okay. And then I'll just be like, no, man, it's not for me. Bad things happen. And then there'll be a laugh and I'll be like, no, I'm in recovery. Yeah. And that usually does it. Right. Um, there's no trick for me. There's no clever thing that I say. Um, usually when I tell people I'm in recovery, they back off. Now, if the if the person is in the throes of addiction, yes. they will fight you. 
they would be like, you're lame. You're a jackass. Yeah, they will. So, so what do you do? What do you do? Okay. So what I say typically is, you know, I said, you know, I just, I don't drink when I work mm-hmm. and I, and I just diffuse it that way. That's great. And they don't need to know the whole story no, they don't. about how I don't you're drink. You're right. You're right. I just say, I don't drink when I work. You know what I mean? And by the way, I work 24 seven staying sober. <laughs> And my job oh, I love it. is to always be 24-7 sober because I am a better human being now. Yeah. Because there's three things for me. Number one, I don't use a drink every day. Don't do it. Yeah. Number two, I have to stay close to my tribe of people like you who give me air, oxygen to breathe. And number three, I have to pay it back. I have to show somebody else, be available at any moment when anybody needs some help to be able. Whenever the hand reaches out, totally. I got to be there. You know, because And I don't want to be there because part of my story is... I've had people call from help, not in recovery, but when I was unable to do it because I had been drinking. Friends, hey man, can you help me? I need, I can't drive to help you because I've been drinking. That is indelibly inscribed into my memory and I just won't ever go back there. And for me, you know, I mean, as we wrap this up, for me, the important thing is it's hard to get over that stigma where people, you know, they know about that story about their Uncle Bill or their friend that, you know, tried to get into recovery and it never quite worked for them. But you know what they don't hear about is they don't hear about people that make it, you know? So that's kind of what I'm really happy to have you here with me today about is that we can have this little podcast that goes off in this little radio station. Who knows who's going to listen to it? You know what I mean? But the reality is, you know what? We're lighthouses and lantern holders for people to go, guess what, brother? You can recover and your life's going to be amazing. The last question I want to ask you is if you had to get into a time travel Uber, okay? Let's say you could call an <laughs> app on your phone. It's yeah. like, oh, time travel. Here we go. I'll get my Uber in. I'm not going to get Uber Dine Dash. I'm going to this. I'm going to go back and, oh, I'm going to go back to name your year. And you're going to talk to you when you were. What would you say to Lee Turner, who was still using in the down on his knees part of his moment? What would you say to him now about your life today? I couldn't even begin to tell him how good my life is now without alcohol and just trust. Wow. I fought the alcoholic anonymous thing for so long. I went to therapist and saw that book on the shelf and feared it. (laughs) Um, I would say just put your faith in a higher power and just let it happen. Take care of yourself. Talk, talk. I I came from a a family where we kept stuff in and that doesn't work. So I had to get to the root of my problems. So I would say, absolutely. Just talk, talk to somebody. And cause it's, it's a, it's a bunch of layers, you know, I don't know. That's a tough one, Mark. I don't know if it's a quick answer. I think what I would do is if I could go back to that person, I'd say, just hang on. Yeah. I gotcha. True. It's going to be, it's going to be okay. Yeah. You're going to get there. It's not going to be easy. And maybe you'll fight and kick, but you know what? It's going to be really great. Really great. Just hang on. Just hang on. Because I think that the hardest part for me, when I was down on my knees with the devil's breath, right? I just didn't have any hope. No. I just had tried everything. I had tried everything. And it was landing in the detox ward at St. Thomas Hospital, Mm -hmm. the very place where Dr. Bill and Bob were there. Okay. That That hospital, which by the way, was where I was born in that hospital. Wow. Okay. We could tell stories, brother. But uh, and I get to go volunteer on Monday nights. Before COVID, I was there every yeah. every every Monday night. But you know, I would I would just tell him that that you know, hang on, 
You know, it's going to be all right. You're going to get there. And, and, and there's going to be a lot of wonderful angels that'll come down and help you mm-hmm. along the way, along the way. Just keep your eyes open mm-hmm. and be willing. Yeah. Right. Be willing. I love it, man. Lee Turner. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us here on this podcast, man. Mark, we could talk for hours. <laughs> I know, man. I, I was say, I, if I was your neighbor, you wouldn't get any work done. You know what I'm saying? But you know what? I would like to invite our, our, our listeners here to subscribe and download to Recovery Talks, the podcast. Like, share, follow. Also, the Rock and Recovery page for 91.3 this summer. But you know what? Stay tuned, everybody, for our next episode as we feature those people on the front lines in the recovery movement, the lantern holders and the lighthouses like my friend Lee Turner here. And until then, everybody, stay standing and stay sober. Love it. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, man. Take care. All right.